Hi, everyone. We are back with our favorite topic. Bank robberies, armored truck heists, and colorful characters. 1969 saw Jack Red Kelly turn state's evidence, Mello Merlino sent off to prison, Sonny Diaferio in and out of court and jail, Roy Appleton retired, Pro Lerner sentenced to life in prison, Tommy Richards and Billy Aggie forever MIA, and Dad moving on from armed robbery but not from a life of crime. The end of an era. Hobart Willis, Bobby Garenti, Ben Tilly, and many of the usual suspects were also out of action. Phil Cresta was on the lam in Chicago and also out of commission, but his brother Billy will be making a brief reappearance in this episode. However, there was no shortage of thieves in Boston. You had the Charlestown guys, Southie Cruz, and Somerville boys left to fill the void left by the departure of the old guard. We're going to be bringing back a few familiar names from last season, as well as traveling a little bit outside of Massachusetts in this episode, but there is a reason. There's always a reason for you to take us down a rabbit hole. Well, one rabbit hole we won't be going down is the story behind the first bank robbery of 1970. No, we will definitely not be covering the story of William Gilday. So what is the first robbery we're covering? Well, it's not a what, but rather a who. Since our last regular episode was about Joseph J.R. Russo, I think we should start with his aunt's brother-in-law, Croce Charlie Centafonti. I just had to get that relationship in there. Let me guess, we're going to have to go back and give Charlie's history. I know, I know we're supposed to be in the 70s, but I'll make it quick, I swear. I surrender. Tell us about Charlie Centafonti. Born in New Haven in 1918, Charlie was the oldest of three boys. His father had died in what was ruled an accident in New York when Charlie was only three, and the family moved to Boston shortly thereafter. Charlie had a record dating back to the 1920s when he was still a juvie, but his first adult conviction was in 1934 at the age of 16 on a B&E charge. He and two other boys had broken into the apartment of a woman who lived in his building and stolen jewelry. At the hearing, the boys tried to escape, but soon found themselves trapped in the courthouse basement. They were herded back upstairs to face additional charges of malicious destruction of property and fleeing. Over the course of his criminal career, Charlie had been convicted of breaking and entering, larceny, armed robbery, auto theft, robbery, carrying a gun, and escaping from a penal institution. In 1955, he was captured after a shootout with the police in East Boston. His partner was killed and he wounded two cops. He was sentenced to 18 to 25 years for armed robbery and assault with a dangerous weapon with intent to murder. Charlie's nickname was The Pig, and he did his best to live up to it. In December of 1957, the Boston Globe reported that Charlie had been admitted to the prison hospital at Walpole after complaining about stomach pains. The prison warden dismissed rumors that he had been poisoned, stating it was probably from overeating. Keep your wisecracks to yourself. I don't want to get slammed for giggling again. What was the comparison, Andre the Giant and Barbie dolls or something along those lines? Enough of that. The following August, Charlie made a bid to escape through an air duct, but he didn't get far. He'd made too much noise, and a guard caught on, catching him in the act. Not to fret, Charlie was eventually paroled and found himself back on the streets. 
In mid-August of 1967, another victim of the gang war was found in a field off of the Mystic Valley Parkway in Medford. An ex-con named Frederick Young had been shot behind the left ear and at the base of the skull with an, either a 32 or a 38. Young had been paroled the previous year, but the rumor was that he was in debt to the loan sharks. Charlie was arrested the following month on murder charges. Charlie and Frederick had hooked up in Walpole, and the authorities alleged that the motive was due to a falling out over money. Attorney Al Farisi was appointed to represent Charlie as a public defender. He argued that his client had a bad heart and that he should be released on bail, but the judge rejected Farisi's plea. In mid-October, Charlie pleaded innocent to the charges and was sent for 35 days of psychiatric observation at Al's request. While he was awaiting trial, Farisi's partner, John Fitzgerald, had his leg blown off outside their office in Everett. We keep coming back to that damn car bombing. We can't escape from it. And Farisi was perfectly willing to use it as an excuse to get out of the trial. You know, I have this fantasy that we'll escape from the 1960s someday. Good luck with that. Farisi also tried to claim that he was worried that his client's chances of a fair trial had been damaged by Fitzgerald's situation. But the prosecution argued that they had two witnesses in protective custody and didn't want any more delays. So Farisi was stuck with representing Charlie. At the trial, the prosecution's main witness, Edward Grady, testified that he had been present when Charlie murdered Young. He claimed that the three of them had been together in a nightclub in Revere and left to go pick up Grady's girlfriend. When she wasn't there, they sat in the car talking, but at some point, Grady said some checks fell out from under the dashboard of the car. He replaced them and they continued talking. Young was in the driver's seat and Charlie was sitting behind him. As Grady, who was sitting next to Young, reached over to turn off the radio, there was a bang and a flash from the rear seat, and I heard Charlie say, you did it once, but you won't do it again. Sentafondi wrapped his arm around Young as he begged, please, please don't. Then he got out of the car and fell to the ground, and the two men left their victim there. Despite Farisi's claims of being unable to defend Santafonte as he deserved, the jury found Charlie innocent in early March after six hours of deliberation. Farisi had found witnesses who alleged that it was in fact Grady who had killed Young and not Charlie, but Farisi's client was not free to go and instead was held on a parole violation. But Charlie did regain his freedom. Once again, he was arrested in October of 1970. An hour after Charlie and his partner stole a safe in Chelsea, the two were scooped up. A search of the men's vehicle uncovered all the paraphernalia the pair had used to snag the safe. After failing to open it, the pair had dumped the safe in a nearby lot and it was promptly recovered by the police. And that leads us to Charlie's last stand and the first bank robbery of this episode. In January the following year, Charlie was shot between the eyes and killed in the middle of a robbery attempt in Malden. The police said that they had been tipped off beforehand and stationed a patrolman in the back room. The cops said that he saw two men at the teller's window and heard one of the men say, give me your money. The cop fired through the teller's window as she hit the alarm and called for backup. Charlie ran out the door, grabbed a car, and sped off towards Somerville, where the cops forced him to a stop. At that point, he jumped out of the stolen vehicle, and when he went for his gun, the cops shot him. Charlie's partner, meanwhile, had been hit in the hand, but managed to get another teller to put money in a bag for him. He fled on foot and rang the doorbell of a neighboring apartment. He asked the residents to call him a cab, and when he left, the cops nabbed him. 
Another criminal mastermind. Keeping with the who, not what theme, let's move on to Atlanta-born but South Boston-raised Gustavus Carmichael. Unlike Nina's tale about Charlie, I'm going to skip the Gustavus's pedigree and jump straight into his life of crime. But I am going to dip my toes into the 1960s just for a moment. In October of 1968, Gustavus, along with Roger Brown and William Royce, were held on $100,000 bail on charges of robbing a bank in Brockton's east side of $18,000 the day before. For those that listened to our bonus episode about Frankie Salemi, you might remember that William Royce was the inmate who shot two prison guards at Norfolk, who Frankie helped save and later received a commendation from Governor Dukakis. Well, that was not Royce's first escape attempt. In March of 69, he, Gustavus, and Brown escaped from Plymouth together. Royce was pinched five days later in Saugus, and Gustavus and Brown made it all the way to Nevada before being caught. In October of 70, Brown and Carmichael, Carmichael made a run for it again, this time overpowering federal marshals while being transported and taking off with one of their sidearms. They were serving time at Walpole for the Brockton robbery, but were still facing charges for a $100,000 Hartford, Connecticut bank robbery in 1968. In late November, they sent a greeting card to the deputy superintendent at Walpole. Brown's leg of the road trip came to an end on January 20th, 1971 in New Hampshire after his girlfriend dumped him and reported him to the local feds. But Gustavus was nowhere to be found. In another case of he would have been better off in jail, Gustavus was found dead in a Connecticut swamp in May of 1974. Well, Gustavus' story doesn't end there, however, so let's jump back to 71 and fill in some holes with some familiar names. On April 26, 1971, $66,000 was stolen by two gunmen as a guard was making his delivery to the Department of Employment Security in Providence. Just days later, warrants were issued for two men. Billy Cresta, who had been acquitted just three months earlier in the 1968 Brinks trial, and John Gary Robichaud, who had previously been charged with killing Frank Dogie Murray in December of 63. But that charge was eventually dropped for lack of evidence in 68, while Robichaud was still in prison at Walpole for armed robbery and assault. And like so many other gangland slangs in Rhode Island, Murray's murder was never solved. Billy Cresta turned himself in a few weeks later, followed by Robichaud a few weeks after that. Robichaud was released on bail, but didn't stay out of trouble. In September, he assaulted a Ford executive from Detroit who was in Boston on a business trip. William Woodhead was scheduled to testify against Robichaud the following February, but Robichaud failed to show up for his own trial. Instead, he was in Detroit setting up a car bomb at his victim's house. The bomb went off when the man's wife started the vehicle. Mrs. Woodhead succumbed to her injuries the following week. Awful. In the meantime, the holdup trial of Billy Cresta was set to begin, but Robichaud was still on the lam. The cops finally caught up with Robichaud in Pawtucket at the end of May. He was armed but surrendered peacefully. A medical examination showed that Robichaud had been recently injured with bullets still lodged in his hand and upper chest. He also had wounds in four other places from bullets that had been removed, but Robichaud apparently refused to tell the authorities what had happened to him. Another familiar character, Ralph DeMassey, was arrested with Robichaud and charged with harboring a fugitive. In July, Robichaud and his wife were found guilty of robbery and conspiracy to rob. The sentencing was postponed pending appeal, but he was eventually given five to seven years and sent to the ACI in Cranston. 
However, just two short months later, Robichaud escaped along with three other men by sawing their way out. The other escapees managed to stay AWOL for over a year, but Robichaud wasn't so lucky. Just five days after his escape, his body was found by a construction worker near a job site in Somerville. The medical examiner said Robichaud had been shot six times, once in the left temple with a 38 and five times in the chest with a 32. The slug from the 38 was found in an abandoned car in Medford, about three miles away from where the body had been found. The vehicle, which was covered in bloodstains, had been stolen the previous month in Boston. The Middlesex County District Attorney claimed that Robichaud had escaped from prison in order to carry out a hit in Massachusetts, but instead had found himself killed by those very same people. Robichaud had help on the outside, the DA alleged. Quote, I have evidence that there is an underworld power struggle in this area, and there is no question that Robichaud was sent here to settle underworld matters, but instead they got to him first, unquote. But Rhode Island State Police Colonel Walter Stone had a different theory. He claimed that Robichaud had attracted too much police attention and had been killed to relieve the heat he'd brought on the other wise guys. Robichaud's body was identified by his wife, who, according to later reports, was the ex-wife of Billy O'Brien, the same Billy O'Brien who was killed by Johnny Moderano almost exactly six months later. Robichaud was still facing murder charges for the death of the woman in Detroit at the time of his death. Really, what an incestuous lot. Two more murder victims were found on the grounds of the Butler Hospital in Rhode Island on the same day that Robichaud's body was discovered in Somerville. The men had been handcuffed and shot in the head. They were identified as Norman Bailey and Paul Lavoie, both of Weymouth. Norman Bailey was identified as a federal informant involved in heroin trafficking, but the cops claimed that they couldn't find any link between the two men and Robichaud. Later, in November, an indictment was handed down against an ex-con named Donald Brandt, who had been running a halfway house in Rhode Island. Brandt would later face murder charges in the death of Gustavus Carmichael. So that's four linked murders, Robichaud, Bailey, Lavoie, and Carmichael. Billy Cresta was found guilty in the April 1971 DES robbery trial in July of 73, but the following year, a woman named Joanne DeFreitas came forward and swore out an affidavit saying that she had taken part in the robbery conspiracy and that Cresta was not actually guilty. A lie detector test showed that she was telling the truth and Billy Cresta was released on bail. At the same time, Joanne DeFreitas also confessed that her common-law husband, Richard, and Donald Brandt had murdered Gustavus Carmichael and his still-unidentified girlfriend. In October of 74, a news writer at WCVB Boston was charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, being an accessory before the fact, and larceny for taking a 10% cut of the proceeds of the proceeds. Billy Kelly and Donald Brandt were named as the two men who had committed the DES robbery. The same Billy Kelly who's still sitting in prison for the Charles Von Maxey slang? Yes, the very same Kelly. Now, let's back up a little bit on the timeline to February of 74 when an armored car was robbed of nearly $600,000 in cash and checks just after making its last pickup in Somerset, Mass. at about 7.30 on a Saturday evening. 
As the guard approached the armored car to put his pickup inside, three masked men armed with a machine gun and a sawed-off shotgun and a revolver jumped out of a green van parked about 15 feet away. They kidnapped the guard and driver and drove the armored car about a mile before unloading the loot into a waiting green Ford sedan and abandoning the two unarmed unharmed victims, sorry, along with the armored car. The ammo was very much Jack Kelly-like. The stolen van had two plates welded together. The men all wore masks, gloves, and their outfits were made to appear like police uniforms, but it doesn't seem like they actually were. The state police called it very well planned and carefully executed. Well, the stolen loot was insured by Lloyd's of London. I just had to get that in there. Did I mention I have a little obsession with insurance? Yes, I'm painfully aware of that. Okay. The authorities had few leads, and it seemed like they weren't going to get anywhere on this one. In the meantime, 200 Brinks guards and drivers were on strike. Former FBI Special Agent Raymond Ball, who is now working for New England Merchants National Bank, downplayed the situation and called it a temporary inconvenience. In March, the stolen checks were discovered by a group of teenagers who came across garbage bags floating in the Sudbury Reservoir. They called the police when they realized what the contents of the bags were. The police took the loot as evidence but expressed no interest in the crime scene. So the kids had to go back to the reservoir and get the rest of it for them. When it was finally determined that the loot was from the Somerset robbery, the teens were rewarded with the $10,000 offered by the insurance company for its recovery. One good deed, at least in this story. Since we're in 1974, let's discuss when Joan DeFreitas made her big confession to the authorities in May of that year. Well, in addition to fingering Billy Kelly and Donald Branch, she also appears to have fingered Eddie Connors, Robert W. Adams, and Edward Gabri. Connors, Adams, and Gabri were all arrested in simultaneous raids early in the morning of May 16th. The authorities found and confiscated seven walkie-talkies and a radio base station. At least one of the units was tuned to the BPD channel covering Dorchester. In addition, they discovered four guns, a small TV camera and monitor, stocking masks, rubber gloves, workmen's coveralls, equipment to tap phone lines, tape recorders, heavy-duty drills, burning equipment, window washers, safety belts, hard hats, and road maps. What, no partridge in a pear tree? I'm sorry, I had to throw that in there. Couldn't help myself. Anyhow, the really crazy thing was that the cops had previously caught Adams, Gabri, and Kelly in July of 72 with similar equipment. The quartet pleaded innocent at their arraignment, and bail was set at $100,000 each. Billy Kelly surrendered at the Bristol County Courthouse, accompanied by his attorney after negotiating for bail to be reduced to 50 k After his arraignment, the judge reduced the bail she'd set for Adams and Gabri to $75,000 and $50,000. Eddie Connors had already posted his $100,000, and he went to a Boston Bruins hockey game. How Boston of him. Mm -hmm. The authorities claim the arrests were the result of a three-month investigation, but given the timing, I doubt they'd have gotten the indictments if Mrs. DeFreitas hadn't given them a lot of help. Eddie Connors was killed in Dorchester the following June by Howie Winters, as many of our listeners probably know. He was still out on bail awaiting trial, and the story goes that he'd made a deal to turn state's evidence. 
But you have to figure Howie was tipped off about Eddie's plan. I agree that someone gave Howie a heads up. We'll get more into Eddie and his murder on an upcoming Hit Parade episode. In the meantime, Billy Kelly surrendered himself to the state police at exit 18 off the Massachusetts Turnpike just a few days later on then still outstanding April 1971 charges. Of course, the authorities were very self-congratulatory about this, but it seems pretty obvious that Kelly turned himself in because he was afraid Howie would make him his next victim. Well, no doubt about that. Adams was sentenced to life in prison the following March. Gabri and Kelly were still awaiting trial, and it's unclear what happened, what the outcome in those cases was. Gabri got picked up later in the 80s as part of a multi-state drug raid. As for Kelly, there will be much more to come from him later in the season. Moving on, I know this is a little bit outside of our normal geography, but I do want to reprise Teddy Green's old partner in crime, David Yacobanis. And that reminds me, we need to do a Teddy Green bonus episode this season. Teddy, another one of our favorite escape artists. If anyone wants to hear more about him, listen to our Thanksgiving bonus episode from 2021. Yacobanis was quite the character and also deserves a short bonus episode. Well, totally, but I'm not sure about short, considering how long-winded we tend to be. At least our listeners can hit the pause button, but heaven help our friends and loved ones. Oh, come on. We're not that bad. Uh, yeah, we are. Anyhow, by the early 1970s, Yacobanis had moved on to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In July of 70, he was captured in New Jersey immediately after robbing a savings and loan bank of $4,200. The feds theorized that Yacobanis might be the Band-Aid bandit who had been robbing banks along the eastern seaboard. They call him the Band-Aid bandit because he wore a Jersey face mask and a Band-Aid on his cheek. Now I've heard it all. Here's how the Band-Aid bandit operated. He would loiter outside the bank until there were few or no customers inside. Upon entering the bank, he would threaten the tellers at gunpoint. Yacobanis was not wearing a Band-Aid, but the mask and his actions were the same in this job. The newspaper noted, though ne nearing 60, Yacobanis was described as a muscular, well-built man who is extremely agile. In other words, a savage, and I mean that as a compliment. Yacobanis was one of those men who was truly born in the wrong century, a Viking raider trapped in modernity. You can tell just by looking at him that he was never going to slow down. He was indicted the following month in pretrial detention in federal custody in New York. In January the following year, Jacobanis and several South American drug smugglers escaped by cutting a hole in the ventilator shaft and lowering themselves from the third floor of the prison onto the roof of an abandoned warehouse next door using ropes made from bed sheets. Their escape was discovered as another prisoner was also attempting to flee. In June, Yacobanis was suspected of robbing another bank in New Jersey of over 15000 but once again he managed to slip away. He stayed off the radar until December of 1974 when he was arrested after robbing a market in Pennsylvania of over $35,000. He had hooked up with a partner named Dylan, who the authorities thought was from Kentucky. The two men refused to identify themselves when they were stopped at a roadblock and the police were forced to issue John Doe warrants. Dylan had attempted to escape by jumping over the guardrails, running down an embankment in waist-deep snow, and then plunging into the creek. The cops had to fish him out, another great Netflix scene. Yacobanis finally surrendered when the police chief pulled his pistol and pointed it at him. How can you not find that funny? I know, but we're not supposed to laugh anymore. Okay. Okay. 
A 22 caliber pistol and the money they'd just stolen were found in the car along with some trading stamps. The two men were arraigned and held on $40,000 bail, which they couldn't pay. The story seems to die there, but Yacobanus ended up moving to the Oklahoma Panhandle in 79 and passed away there in 85. It seems highly unlikely that he just stopped, though, so I'll just tease Teddy Green again here and speculate that it is entirely possible that Yacobanus and Teddy Green hooked up again. A dream team of sorts, or at least a dream duo. Okay, last story for today. This is one that is a bit outside of our normal geography since we're going to the Berkshires, but the name should be familiar to our regular listeners, Red Halliday. Just a little before noon on Monday, June 25th, 1979, the Berkshire Bank and Trust in Pittsfield was robbed by three men wearing Navy windbreakers, ski masks, and armed with automatic pistols. The heist took place shortly before the armored car was scheduled to arrive to pick up the weekend's deposits. With a score of nearly $250,000, it was the largest bank robbery in the county's history. It was also the fourth heist in that area in six months. The three men escaped in a getaway car driven by a fourth man and then parted ways a short distance away, each in their own vehicles. The now abandoned getaway car had been stolen from an airport in Albany about 10 days earlier. The bank also had cameras, but the police wouldn't say if they got a clear shot of any of the thieves. In Jack Kelly's days, at least, they didn't have to worry about surveillance cameras, but certainly kept an eye out for other types of surveillance when they were staking out a heist. But I also wonder if being closer to New York made a difference. We're a decade ahead now, so the tech was a little more advanced and less expensive, but remember how there were cameras monitoring some of the Devlin jobs that took place in Connecticut, too. We'll be covering Eddie Devlin later in the season before we get into the murder of Billy Grasso in 1989. Any excuse to take us back to the 1960s. Hey, I'm just going to ignore you. Back to the Red Halliday tale. The following Monday, the police announced that they had gotten a warrant for a suspect named Sparrow LaBerrys, who had been AWOL since being sentenced to 15 years in July of 76 for a $67,000 heist that he had pulled off in November of 69. They also named Kenneth Ray Whiteman, who had recently escaped from Walpole by hiding in the trunk of the prison chaplain's car. Another ex-con named Ralph Petroziello was also charged. He had been out on parole when he was picked up loitering near a bank in Newton, but he'd been released on bail and fled. And a third man, Michael Donahue, was arrested in Quincy in late July. He was convicted and sentenced to the following year to life in prison. In August of 1979, Red Halliday and his wife Linda were charged with being accessories after the fact for harboring a fugitive, meaning white men. Halliday had been out on parole at the time of the heist, but returned to prison in July for associating with suspected bank robbers. The authorities allege that Halliday and his wife had been involved with the thieves both before and after the heist in Pittsfield. Linda Halliday was released on $500 bail. The Brockton Savings Bank was robbed by two men with sawed-off shotguns in early October that same year. They escaped with $110,000 and a red Ford Mustang, which they abandoned a short ways away. The two men, believed to be Whiteman and Petroziello, were stopped in New Hampshire for a traffic violation, but let go after the pair convinced the cop that they were also cops working on a drug investigation. Ralph Petroziello was eventually captured in August of 83 at a telephone booth in Huron, Ohio, which the authorities said he would use regularly to phone home. A search of his apartment gave them Whiteman's location just 10 miles away. 
Petraziello was found not guilty the following year after his attorney showed proof that the cops had lost evidence in the case. In January of 86, the state Supreme Court ruled that Donahue deserved a new trial since the prosecution had failed to obtain reports from the FBI that could have helped Donahue prove his innocence. But at the retrial in May, Donahue pleaded guilty to armed robbery while masked and was sentenced to 10 to 12 years. The 65-year-old Lavarice was caught almost exactly one year later while living in Billerica. Inside his apartment, the authorities found a sawed-off shotgun, a 38 caliber handgun, ammo, a bulletproof vest, wigs, masks, false beards, and paraphernalia for making keys. Ironically, Lavarice had a safe deposit box at a bank in Woburn. Inside was a little under $13,000 in fives, tens, and hundreds, most of them in sequential order. He was never charged and passed away in 1997. Lavarice also makes me think of Teddy Green, that Greek connection. For sure. There were so many heists that took place. The Louis Royce robbery in September of 1970. Well, that's going to have to wait until we discuss the 1980 Brinks robbery and your dad with the dollies. Also, the November 1971 robbery of the U.S. Trust Company in Mattapan, that was supposedly pulled off by Carmen Totora, Alfred Iannaco, and the good old Bruce Trant. Then there was the $280,000 that was taken at the Ponset Circle in December of 1972 and four major heists in 1973. And don't forget the five other bank robberies and two jewelry store stickups between December of 73 and February of 75 that were said to have been pulled off by a Charlestown crew consisting of Albert Titcomb, George Whalen, and Frederick Stearns. There was also the Braintree Wells Fargo armored truck heist in June of 77, which was, I think, 250000 There were just too many to squeeze in here. Next week, we'll be back with the Hit Parade episode. Nina, are we going to do 74 and 75 together or separate? Well, in an effort to keep the episodes a little shorter when possible, let's keep them separate. So 74, which includes Ben Tilly, Paul McGonigal, James Souza, and Crazy, Fli- Cl- Crazy Clifford Freeman, my goodness, among others. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Bye.